everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the Communications Coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes, and I'm actually going to host it today with Nick Gibson, our lead pastor. This Sunday, Nick preached on the church and how it is God's sheltering, healing, and developing fellowship for all. We're going to answer the remaining questions that we got on Sunday, but if you have any further questions, please email them to us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd also love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Ashlyn, and I'm here with Nick, and we're going to do the Ask Me Anything questions remaining from the service this past October 18th. All right. Ready, Nick? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, First question. This one, we're going to do questions unrelated to the sermon first. So what are some of the differences between Orthodox Christians and Protestants, and how important are they? Yeah. Um, Trying to answer that briefly is a little (laughs) difficult. So in some ways, um, it's it's that these things have developed for a couple thousand years. So how Orthodox people look at their Christian expression and how we do is very, can be very different, but it also depends on like which Protestant, which Orthodox person. So for example, I've had on this podcast, Father Gregory Jensen, who's a, a Orthodox priest here in Madison. And there's lots of things that he really dislikes that he's heard Protestants say. And there's no things that I think are wrong that I've heard Orthodox people say. But I have a hard time finding a very substantive theological disagreement between him and I, right? Like, I'll say something, I'll be like, this is how I think about that. And then he'll say, yeah, I see where you're coming from. Like, the Orthodox tradition would say it a little bit more like this. And a lot of it has to do with differences differences in conceptualization. The one place where the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church tends to be fairly different than historic Protestantism is in its understanding of how what what is called grace that is the sort of the presence and working of god god's generous work in us is infused or works through other things particularly what they call sacraments or the sacred things right so for example when jesus says that the sacrament in the sacrament of communion or the, what we call the lord's the lord's supper when jesus says this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me um I, I, I want to say at one of at one of the situations where the earliest Protestants got together, Luther wrote on the table, it, this is maybe legend, but it, it gets at the controversy well, is Jesus said, this is my body. And then Zwingli or whoever was in the other members, he said, he said, do this in remembrance of me, right? And so there's this kind of controversy between, is the emphasis on this is my body, meaning this literally is my body in some extraordinarily real way in which... Um, it really is his body when you take the bread or is it something we do in remembrance of him that we remember that this was done with his body, that this is his body, that as we eat it, it represents that in that powerful way. And my answer to that is, I, I'm just not sure we're supposed to be fighting over that. I, I mean, he says, he, Jesus said it in the direct descriptive. This is my body. That's what he said, right? I don't think he literally meant we were engaging in cannibalism. Like it literally is the flesh of the man Jesus Christ, who if he is in his complete humanity, we are eating a eating human flesh. 
I, I just don't think that that's literally what he means. But when he, but it, I think it, other people are like, well, it's just, you know, you just remember. And that's all the, all the significance is, is you're looking back to a historical event. That doesn't be, appear to be the case either because in first Corinthians, Paul says that some of the Corinthian Christians have gotten sick and died because of the way they've engaged with the Lord's Supper. That is that there's some kind of spiritual presence that the Holy Spirit engages in, in this, the sacrament or this ordinance or whatever you want to call it, the Lord's Supper, that like his, his judgment is present. His power is present in a way that it doesn't seem to be just for anything. So it, you know, I, I, I don't, yeah, I, th- I think th- I, my disagreements with the Orthodox and Catholic churches, particularly the Orthodox church has, is much more procedural than it is theological. It has to do with how we engage in trying to grow spiritually, how we conceptualize Christian truths, how we talk about them and how we proclaim them more than saying like, well, they believe that false doctrine. We believe this true doctrine. And I'm not saying there aren't any, I'm certainly not an expert on this. Um, but at the older I've gotten, the less I'm like, well, the, the they're heretics and we're right. And the more I've gotten like, we just were thinking about this very differently. If you want to fight, you can find what things to fight about because of the way they say stuff when we say stuff. But if you're like, well, what are you getting at when you say that? And what am I getting at when I say this? Man, it feels a lot more like we're we're saying things very differently. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. And if you read the, the, some of the early Orthodox theologians that that Protestants share, like St. Athanasius, when Athanasius talks about divinization, which is an idea of really deep sanctification where you really are experiencing union with the divine nature of God. Well, that's, I mean, literally second Peter says that. So if you're a Protestant, like you might be very uncomfortable calling it divinization. I get that, but you have to have a doctrine of us sharing in the divine nature and escaping the corruption that is in the world. I, otherwise you just, it's not, it's not that you're disbelieving Orthodox theology. You're disbelieving the scriptures, which Protestants are supposed to major on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, so obviously they have doctrines about who could be a priest, what a priest is, that a priest has continuity with the Old Testament. Like there, there are cl- true differences. Um, but at the heart of the doctrine, like how are we saved? Who is Christ? What is Christ? What are the scriptures? How do they function? Are what does it mean that they're inspired? A lot of those things they mean. What they mean is is I think substantially similar to what we mean. Yeah, does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, so it sounds I, I don't a lot feel more. Sub- it sounds a lot more like how they structure their church and their disciplines, their spiritual disciplines is a lot different or it can be a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with the veneration of Mary, for example. Like uh, when I was at, I was at a conference, I, w- I went to Father Jensen's worship service because you go to Catholic worship, Orthodox worship or Protestant worship in the morning. And honestly, the Protestant worship was all talking and no worship. Mm. And I mean, it was just, we got into a room, we just talked. And like, I appreciate preaching. Like I'm a, literally a preacher, but I was like, you know, I kind of want to go to some place where people are going to adore God. Yeah. And uh, frankly, it wasn't the Protestant worship service. It, it, so I went to the Orthodox one and one of the mornings they did the liturgy of the veneration of Mary, which was all worship. Most of it was the worship of God and his Christ. Some of it through the veneration of Mary. Mm. I just didn't say the Mary parts. I just, <laughs> just was like, okay, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, there's substantive disagreements, but like, I, I'm just, I'm not super into the, the sort of fundamentalist Baptist combativeness thing. I'm more, yeah, where there are substantive differences, we need to be substantively different and they exist, mm-hmm. but I, I tend to think that we should, we should not have an unnecessarily combative view towards yeah. those traditions. 
And it doesn't surprise me when I, when I know Catholics and Protestants that I believe are genuine believers. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't take it as a like, well, the Catholic, Catholic church is apostate, but every once in a while they'll accidentally produce a believer. That's not how I think about it. I think that the Catholic church is a crapshoot, much like some Protestant churches. I do think that there are some liabilities in their doctrines that are historically grounded and all of that. But I take, I take Catholics case by case. Mm-hmm. The same thing with, with Orthodox people. It turns out to a greater extent with Protestants too. Yeah. All right. What are some of the pros and cons of High Point being a non-denominational church? Mm. Um, pros are freedom, a related freedom and liberty. Like we can do what we want. We can make our own choices. We can determine our own partnerships. We determine our own doctrine, all of that, right? The negatives are we have no external resources. Nobody to help us. Nobody to, nobody whose job it is to support us. Nobody who was able to like, was a great leader in other churches and has been made our bishop and they're available to help us and so on. Um, having pastored in a denominational church for seven years before I came to High Point, um, I don't really miss it. Um, I think that the mainline denominations in particular are more of a liability than a benefit. Mm-hmm. And um, the part of the reason for that is, is that when you have a superstructure that connects the churches, it tends to be formed into a bureaucracy pretty quickly. And that bureaucracy draws not the most dynamic leaders of the group, but the most bureaucratic climber, climbers in the group. People who like to like tell other people what to do and make policies and blah, blah, blah. And I just think it becomes sclerotic really fast. Mm-hmm. So when I was in um, the, was the second or third largest American denomination, um, the denomination was nothing but trouble. It was just mm-hmm. nothing but trouble. The, 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 uh, the, the, um, the disaster relief organization that the, that the denomination had was really good. But like, so was everybody else's. Like, so was the Red Cross. And so was like the Southern Baptists. And like, everybody else was really good too. We could have given money to them. So our church was paying $190,000 just right off the top for just expenses related to belonging to that denomination. And they were supporting missionaries with some of it, but they were missionaries. Most of them didn't believe in Jesus. And so, um, so denominations can be an enormous liability, but they can also be a benefit. Like the evangelical free church. Um, I think their denominational structure has allowed them to plant more churches to sustain a seminary. Like a non-denominational church like ours can't sustain a seminary where we can train pastors. And so we have to train them all in house. So, and so we can't, um, pay for the livelihoods of scholars. So we don't tend to have scholars. We can only do that because other churches are doing it. If the evangelical free church didn't exist, we wouldn't have Trinity to send our students to the seminary that we tend to send students to. So there are things like that, right? But of all the denominations in America, um, the evangelical free church is the only denomination in which two denominations merged that then grew. Most of the denominations in America that exist today are a couple of different older denominations that merged together and that continued to decline. Denominations tend to be organizations of decline um, historically. And so um, uh, I think being non-denominational forces us to keep, um, we have no outside resources, so we're totally dependent on our membership in our outreach today. Like if we stop being excellent, our church is going to die much quicker Yeah, in, cer- in certain ways, not in every way, but in certain ways. Anyway, so those are mm-hmm. some of them. Yeah. And not coming from a church background, like something that I found interesting when learning about different denominations is like how I think Anglicans, for instance, will mm-hmm. 
they all recite the same pass or like read the same passage together. They're all they're all going right. through the same thing together, same which I think books, can be same yeah, liturgy, same lectionary, mm-hmm, same li- yeah, liturgy. And I think that can be cool from a universal church standpoint. Like yes. like you're all connected and doing the same thing. But at the same time, I think that there's a loss in how you can um, you know address issues in your congregation locally, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think we have a lot of freedom to do that, like to address the needs of people in Madison. And mm. what we're sensing in this area versus, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah I know you're right. If you go to, to certain Roman Catholic churches in like Denver and Seattle and like small town Missouri, it'll be very similar. Mm-hmm. But those cities are very different and should, should their, yeah, shouldn't their expression and preaching and stuff be different? You know, the, yeah, yeah right. is the answer. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Then next, don't Catholics use the St. Cyprian quote of church as mother to argue that salvation is only possible through the church? So this was from your sermon. You quoted St. I think I'm saying it right. St. Cyprian. St. Cyprian, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where he said no one can claim to have God as his father who does not also have the church yes. as his mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is yes. Um, Roman Catholics and others do claim that they claim, they claim the authority of St. Cyprian to say that um, the place of the church in your life must be a certain way as determined by that denomination um, because of that truth. And the reason why, but, but here's, so you could read that question. I mean, so Nick, should you not have then quoted St. Cyprian, right? <laughs> yeah. I think and that I, was not, the intent of the question. <laughs> yeah. And I think the answer is no. I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a classic, like um, how far can you push a truth? Right. Um, I, like I can mean what I meant by it. And that could be how it's properly applied. And Roman Catholics can say, no, what it has to mean is, is that you have to be in a church that has apostolic succession and blah, 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 whatever they would say. And you could say, well, it could just mean that you can't say that you believe in Jesus without being connected to the local church, that the, the local church with its elders and its connections with the scriptures and, and, and its preaching and its church discipline, what is outlined in the Bible itself um, must exist and you should, we should be a part of it. Right. So I would say, um, I don't, I, I, instead of disagreeing with Cyprian, who seems to me to claim that just what the New Testament says, I would much rather, I would rather much rather dispute Roman Catholics in how they utilize his quotation rather than to attack his quotation. I think Cyprian's right. So. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, next, should the leaders we are electing be those that have empathy for people versus those that focus on money, like the economy. What is the right balance? And I don't know if this person was referring to leaders like church leaders or or political leaders. Yeah, I guess I was assuming political. But um, yeah. in the first service, I talked about people not fighting for the church and that mm-hmm. the people who didn't fight for the church were interested in how much people gave and that sort of thing. Um, because it, so, so let's answer it as though it's the church first, right? Sure. Um, it is true that if you have no interest in the finances of the church, the finances of church, the church can easily fall into disarray and corruption. And so like right now at high point, we have a very fastidious um, uh, a guy who's an accountant and does like forensics, forensic accounting for a living. And he's very, he's not super flexible in relationship to things financial. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's good. Like if, you know, most people, if they look at that, be like, yeah, maybe that gives Nick a headache from time to time. But Thank God. You know, like we're a $2 million organization. We want like very focused people, right? But that same guy can also be somebody who believes in people and like cares about what we're doing with people and that, you know, that we love people and that we're also going to face negative things and so on. Um, I th- The reason why I think that this might've been a reference to politics is because the first part talked about empathy. 
rather than confronting because in my example i talked about confronting um dysfunction mm-hmm. and this is like shouldn't we have people with empathy and i think that i think that what that's getting at is actually a political notion which is that the american left is often associated with empathy and the american right is often associated with realism right that like look, you just can't run up innumerable debts forever and think that the country's not going to go bankrupt, right? And so you can't do whatever you want for whoever you feel bad for. That's just not possible, right? And then the the sort of the, the American left is kind of like, yeah, but they need it. They need help, right? Which is one of the reasons why I think that the division between men and women voting for Republicans and Democrats in America has less to do with things like Roe versus Wade and abortion rights and more to do with that women distributionally tend to be more empathic in their relationship towards others and men distributionally as a population tend to be more focused on like what's going to work for the tribe at large over the long term into the future so that we can all be competent and survive and so i think more men vote republican more women vote democrat for that reason not because like women just like got to have their abortions i think it's temperamental and relational to how we embody our genders and how we care for children and how we bring new life into the earth and how we depend on each other anyway so i think that and that's why i think more more women politicians are democrats too so i i think when you look at that and you say like what's the balance i i I don't i do think it's a balance in one sense that um there is a cold equation where people just go well you know we can't help can't help you you know I mean, the fact is that America has been a prosperous nation. We don't have to live in deficit in order to do things to help people. Some things. We certainly can't have a multi-trillion dollar welfare state and be solvent, but we can do some things, right? Originally, like when the New Deal came out, it wasn't all deficit spending, right? I, I think that the issue that I would, I would want to, like if I was going to push the, the empathic group, the, the people who would normally vote Democrat or be pro- more progressive, I would say, are you really sure that empathy leads towards loving action? Because I'm not sure that's true. For example, I I think that the way that we have interacted with the American poor for a lot of years has been harming them dramatically. And I I think, I think one thing that almost everybody would agree on was that the housing projects of the 1950s and sixties ended up being a really bad idea. It was created out of empathy. People wanted a place in the city for these folks who are migrating to live they thought having everybody together would allow us to access the better with social services and governmental programs, but they actually turned into cesspools because we actually couldn't stop crime and gang formation and or the decline of the family or any of those kinds of things. And so by trying to help people, we ended up hurting them, including things we can't easily fix. Like in the 1950s, if you were born a young black boy in America, you were more likely to be born to a house with your father in which you would have a father throughout your life than if you were white. Now, now of course, it's dramatically reversed. and. And many people have argued it's not because the black family had to break down, but it's because of the programs and situations and structures that we inflicted upon them. You know, we being the the all people, you know, and voters and so on. So, um, so yeah. And then on the other side of, on the other hand, to people on the right, you have to say to people: is is sheer competition economically really what produces the most vibrant economy and what puts us in the best place financially? Right. Or is there a certain level of care or a certain level of making sure everybody gets a good education to start? Or is there like, is there, is really just in, in, in um, historical political terms, they call this laissez-faire. It's a French term, meaning you just let things happen. That if you, if, if, if you, if you have freedom and by freedom, you mean you just let things happen economically, 
will that really produce goods? And the answer for most, even Austrian economics, who are the, like the most conservative economists, they'll be like, no, no, it's, it's freedom under law. And the government should enact certain kinds of laws, but very few. So, con- quote, conservatives historically of the Austrian economic school have never said there's no place for government. They've just said that the place for government is specific, identified, and circumscribed, right? Which is the opposite of the philosophy of socialism that, that underlies fascism and totalitarianism, which is, I mean, the word fascism literally means fascist, which is an Italian word for a bundle of sticks. In English, it was the word faggot. So like historically, a faggot was a group of sticks in English. I know that sounds weird because of the American yeah. gay connotation, but like a faggot, you, you like in, in like historic literature, like they'll be like, you know, get the faggots together and throw them in the fire. That was not an anti-gay slur. That was, that was like, Hey, let's start a fire so we could be warm. Right. In, in, in Italian, it was the fascist, which is the bundle of sticks. And so you have this bundle of sticks and a rope tied around it. And in many of the early fascist symbols, that's what they had. It was, there was like literally a bundle of sticks and rope wrapped around it. And what it meant was Mussolini said it this way, everything inside the state, nothing outside the state. And it was the belief that the state was involved in everything, that the government could naturally and normally and rightly be involved in everything. And that was the nature of fascism. And then, of course, then it got worse. It got more nationalistic and all those kinds of things. But the fundamental meaning of the word is the government is in everything, right? Historically, Austrian economists and people of that score have said, that's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Because government has all these perverse incentives in which the wrong sorts of people, very wicked people, people who want to play games, bring in corruption, and and success isn't based on other people's voluntary purchase of your things or voluntary association. It's now every because everything government does at, at, the, at the end of the day is by force. If you won't do it, they will force you. And and most libertarians of that stripe would say you want you want as little as possible in your society to function by force. Therefore. You want as little as possible in society to function by government. So in that, but even those people who are very like close to lazy fair, they still believe in like environmental protections, certain environmental protections, certain worker protections, right? Certain protections on things like rights of contract and private property and those sorts of things. Because without those things, if you get more laissez faire than that, then you're just an anarchy. It's just the state of nature. And that doesn't produce anything. We had the state of nature for thousands of years and people destroyed things as fast as they built anything. So I think. I think that when we look at both politics and the church, when we look for leadership, it's more that we need to find people who are very difficult to corrupt, who have, um, who who are against people trying to get special deal, deals for themselves. They're anti-corruption people. They aren't so ideological that they have a shallow and immature view of the world. Most most ideologies lead you to, lead you towards one thingism. Like, well, if you know we got this one thing right, then we, the world would be great. And the world isn't like that. That's just silly, and it's a very immature way to think. But a lot of a lot of politicians talk that way because it's easy to do that for a two minute soundbite, you know. Yeah. So I, I think we have to be. My argument would be like I don't think it's balancing empathy versus um, laissez faire economy. I think it's looking for somebody who has the guts the character and the depth of understanding to govern in an extremely complicated world. And there's just not a lot of those, but those are the people we should elevate. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And um, those people are often easy to attack because they say things that are balanced. So you can pick things out of both sides and throw things at them, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know. Yeah. But, and it sounds like they're not made up on one side of an issue or another, right. Or yeah. that they have a different, I mean, yeah. you know, it's not the, Right, right. Because people talk approach. now publicly, 
not to get attacked rather than to say something. Yeah. You know, like when Kamala Harris called um, young people stupid, right? People have like attacked her for this. She's like, cause she's like, you know, what do we know about 20 something year olds? They're the dumbest people on earth. Right. Well, she was stating a fact. I mean, like, it's not like, I, I mean, I, like I, I don't particularly think she's fantastic, but she's basically like, do you think we should listen to 20 somethings about crime policy for the whole world who haven't even graduated from college? She's like, no. Right now, obviously being on the democratic ticket, they're trying to maximize the youth vote. And she's like, yeah, let's give 16 year olds the right to vote. But like, yeah. So maybe she shouldn't have said the latter, but the former, like she was making an argument about how legal policy should be created. Or like when she said that we should be tough on crime. Like if you, like I like like I'm I don't particularly like Kamala Harris, right? But like I went and listened to her lecture, and basically what she said was, "You can't start with being easy on crime, and think the world is going to get better, right? You've got to start upstream of that, and then work your way down to lesser sentencing, right? So because if you just say like we're not going to sentence people to anything, or we're not going to stop crime, or we're not going to police neighborhoods, everything gets so bad you can't do anything else that makes things better. So aggressive policing and prosecution actually precedes better schools, less gang involvement, more stable families, less men, like all kinds of things that you really need. Right. Well, I don't have to be a Kamala Harris fan to try to be, have the character to listen to what she actually said. And what I, what I heard was, is she was saying something sufficiently nuanced from actual practice of being a prosecutor. And I actually appreciate that. And so the person who attacked her made me like her more rather than less because I went and listened to what she said. Right. And, but the problem is, is because the world is like that people don't just speak frankly because the problem with Harris in that situation was she spoke, she was speaking very frankly. Right. And if you, if you hang people for that kind of thing, I probably should say hang because of the connotation because she's African-American, but like, but if you attack people like that, when they just say something with candor, like that's a really bad, you like what you get is like, people won't say anything. And it, you you get shallower and shallower people who look good because the people who say nothing the best become the most. So yeah, I, I suppose that's circular for that answer, but I just, I just don't think it's about a balance. I, yeah. You know, I think it's, I, but I do think that you need to have, I think one of the things Christians have to think through is this and I'll, I'll end the answer with this. Um, I don't think, I think you have to have a primary principle and a secondary principle, right? This will actually get to some of our, some of the questions that are coming up here, but like, do you believe that um, you, so, so for example, when I choose how much I give in my family life, I just, I, I look at my finances first, right? How much do I have? And then I try to figure out how much I can give away. So how much I give away is dictated by how much I earn and my expenses. Based on those two things, then I know how much I can give, right? The, governmentally, you've got to ask yourself if you think it's the same. Right? Should the gov- should the government, because all of our debt has to be paid by our children. Some would argue it's immoral to use your children's money to do what you want to do today, even if you think it's humanitarian. Right? Like it's good programs. But the, the question is, is that right? You see, if you believe that you have to structure the society for stability and and economic stability first, then have an overflow, and then you should give that overflow to the poorest in that society in systems that are driven by the emotion of empathy, but that are, you know, science-based or human nature-based in ways that will really improve their lives. That's different than saying we have to do everything we think is right. And then we'll do make the best of the finances, which frankly, both the Republicans and Democrats have been doing for a while is they've said, what should we throw money at? 
basically not really for the good of the poor, I don't think, but it's, it, it seems to be a lot related to what will get us the vote constituency we need to get to 51%. Who do we flatter with what programs and money? And then we'll see what happens with the finances. And I just, I think that that, I can't think of anything more immoral than spending your children's money. Like it's for, I mean, and that may be partly because I'm an immigrant son that like my parents saved their whole lives to give me something, to give me a chance. The idea that as a culture, we're spending our children's money, even if we think we're helping the poor with it. And there's hardly any evidence that we're helping the poor, that most of the money is being transferred to white people with college degrees who are in the helping professions. That's what more, most of the money is actually going. And so what's happening is a whole generation of white people who have degrees in the helping professions are their livelihoods are being paid for. And we're spending our children's money to do that. And I just, I just don't think that's smart. I, th- I think it's probably immoral. So you can see, like, you can think through these questions a number of different ways, right? Some people say, but how could you let a child starve now? Right. As opposed to creating some debt for later, right. That we're not even going to pay because we're going to debase our currency. You know, <laughs> like there's, there's other ways to think it through, you know? So mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. Um, the membership class required a reading of the church covenant and bylaws and to pledge mm-hmm. substantial agreement with them. These documents do not include the aspect of enjoyment and delight in one another. Rather, they present an overriding view that the church is to hold the member accountable for sin, and the role of the member is to fulfill the church's mission and to hold others accountable for their sin. Is it the elders and your intent to see that the delight and enjoyment in one another become part of High Point Church life, or will the covenant and bylaws be the reality? That was a bit of a long question, but you talked about enjoyment and and delight Mm -hmm. in your sermon. Um, And I think that this person should um, go to one of our town halls that is coming Mm -hmm. up about our proposed changes to the bylaws and constitution. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I I think this has to do with like what people say and then what people hear, right? I think that people who come to churches like High Point that are seeking to be really scripturally focused and are in that sense conservative. That is, we wish to conserve the truth of the scriptures and of the Christian faith. Um, so in that sense, we're conservative. And yet we want to respond to the mo- the present moment contextually. In that sense, we want to be progressive, right? I don't really like those words, but those are words people tend to use. Um, it sounds like when I say what people should experience when they come here is delight. They should experience people delighting in them um, and loving them and, and um, enjoying them, right? And somebody says, oh, well, wait a second now. Are you saying... That that means now we're not going to confront people, we're not going to face sin, and we're not going to do that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. in my defense, I would say, I think if you re-listened to the sermon and looked at my slides for the sermon, you would see that on, that on other points like vigilance, I talked about other people looking out for you, other people telling you what they fear for you, other people confronting you, that there's the benefit of shepherding. Well, the benefit of shepherding is being confronted by elders about your sin publicly, right? I think I literally said in that sermon, I think this might be where the question came from because I literally said, look, the, it's the job of the elders to confront people about their sin. It's mainly your job to love and delight in them, right? And I think what his person is he's saying, well, the Constitution actually says it's the member's job to mm-hmm. confront sin. And that mm-hmm. is true. That really is true. And um, I, I don't, my, but here's the thing. For me, the two are, it's a complete non sequitur. Like, I don't choose between those two in my parenting. I don't say, well, you know, I've got to confront my kids, so I'm not going to delay and enjoy them and show them how much I, how much I love them and how much they're enough for me and how, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, I'm easily pleased in them, right? I'm going to do both. I have to do both. I have to correct them when necessary, but they, I have to delight in them. And I think that um, 
I think that what can easily happen is, is that if you're the gruff sort of person, you read the New Testament, you see all this stuff about correction and confronting sin, and you're like, dang right, I knew it. There it is. You know, God agrees with me. And if you're like the empathic, emotive, you read through and you read all these verses about edification and building up and encouraging and strengthening and all that kind of stuff. You're like, see, the Bible is so into like encouraging. Like, and the problem is, is like it says both. Like, there's so much in the Bible about encouraging and building people up and lifting them up and being there for them and comforting them and making sure they're not overcome with sorrow, even when you do discipline and all these sorts of things about encouraging and helping, delighting and, and encouraging people and enjoying them. And then it also says that we have to confront sin. It absolutely does. And um, we do that by preaching. We do it with church discipline. And it is also our job to do that in the lives of each other. And so it is the job of the membership to do that. Absolutely. So my answer to this person is, I do not seek to live in a church in which there is a true or between those two things. I want to see us. But, but like when you walk into the church, you should start, you shouldn't start looking for sins to correct. You should start looking for humans that God loves to delight. in. Then when you run into a sin, right, that you can't in good faith avoid, right, then you engage in correction. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what I, what I find in churches that tend to be conservative in the theological and theological sense is they tend to become conservative in the cultural sense. And then they start to be in like, kid, get off my lawn. And they start to get really like upset and corrective and like in all the wrong ways. And then, and then you get all these kids who leave your church when they're old. And they're like, you know, people in my church, I couldn't do anything right. They didn't like us. They, they hated the youth. Like, you know, we broke the, the drywall one time. And then they decided we couldn't play sports and youth group anymore. And like, you get that kind of church. And that kind of church dies is ugly. And more importantly, isn't living out the truth of the gospel. And so I think we, yeah, so absolutely. I'm, listen, I'm, I only know a handful of pastors that do church discipline and they encourage people to confront sin and dang it, I will be one of them till I die, but not at the expense of delighting in people, especially when that's just as much commanded in the scriptures as the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. All right. Um, another question related to the sermon, what about churches in quotation marks uh, that are compromising with the truth of God's word, tolerating false doctrine or actual false teaching, as is seemingly widespread today in Christianity, also in quotation marks. How are we to relate to them? Um, so for that question, it's a, it all depends on what you mean by question, right? It, it depends on what they mean by compromising, and it depends on what they mean by um, relating. Tolerating? Related. Yeah, tolerating and related. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, for example, um, a few years ago, I got a call from a pastor in Milwaukee that was very concerned about some when somebody was moving here, and he was looking for a church for them, and he wanted to know if we allowed women to wear pants at our church. And I was mm-hmm. like, "Do we allow women to to wear pants?" I was like, "We do, actually, yeah." And he's like, "Well, I don't know why you would make that compromise and turn away from God in that way." And I was like, "Well." Okay, let me just start with like I have no idea what you're even talking about. Right? <laughs> like, wh- where in the Bible does it say women can't wear pants? And he was like, "Well, it says that women should have a sign of authority, especially if they're married." And wearing pants is a form of rebellion. Like it was like in the 19 whatevers when like women start wearing pants. Like like so for him it symbol like he's like in American history the move to pants symbolized a rebelliousness in women relative to other unchristian disestablishment ideas. And so on. And so for him, like that marked a kind of compromise. And so his church, like way back then was like, we ain't doing pants. Like wearing pants shows that women don't want to be feminine. 
and femininity is fundamental to our humanity, which is fundamental to our doctrine of creation. So for him, that was literally heresy, right? I was struggling with tracking with him on that one. Like I was like, I was like, oh, listen, I get you. I, but listen, I, I don't think that when my assistant wears pants, she's saying, I don't want to be a woman. And I don't want to, I don't want to submit to my husband in our marriage covenant or like, I, I just don't think that's what she's doing. I think she's wearing pants. Cause like, that's what was that target. And like, she's wearing pants. Like, I, I don't have to tell you. He, right? He's like, well, you know what? I, I don't have to tell you. Like, he, he's just like, like, so, and I've heard people say all kinds of things like contemporary music rather than hymns is compromised. So it's a, first of all, it depends on what you mean by compromise. If you mean like historic Christian doctrine, like the authority of scripture, the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, I would include what I would include basically with the, with the uh, fundamentalists from the turn, turn of the 20th century. This was before fundamentalism had to do with separation. It was just like people, a bunch of people in the midst of what was called modernism at the time or liberal theology saying, what are the fundamentals? Like, what are the basics? Like if you deny these, you've denied Christianity. It includes the virgin birth, some things like that. And um, I would affirm most, I think all of the fundamentals that were outlined in those essays in, in the early days. And I think that when churches deny those, my response is um, to reject that doctrine and to pull back my trust in relating with those other churches. That doesn't mean I'll in, I entirely break off immediately. It, it kind of depends on what it is that they're denying. So yeah. I think that they're, and, and some of that too has kind of a strange and ambiguous relationship with politics, right? Because depending on how you feel about what, what you think is the status of something like abortion or gay marriage or the relationship of the state to something like mar- gay marriage, um, those kinds of ideas that some people hold at the level of doctrine um, can be areas where people are like, well, that's a theological compromise. So I remember being in college and people believing that if you believed um, in that the government should affirm gay unions legally similarly to gay marriage, that that was a compromise, right? I just don't know anywhere in the Bible that makes a, makes a claim relative to our political philosophy in quite that way. Right. And so, and I'm not saying you can't come to doctrines through the work of theology, because I believe the Trinity is a fundamental doctrine that we come through through work of theology. But, um, but, but those, those areas do require some judgment. Like you have to decide, like, and think it through. So yeah. So where, where churches turn away from those truths, I Pull, I pull back my desire to cooperate with them. That's one of the reasons why I like being in a non-denominational church because there are some <laughs> churches we do not cooperate with because of their doctrine, frankly. Um, I rarely speak out against a church um, unless they're very strident speaking out against us or speaking out against the doctrine. Um, then sometimes I will, um, but, but it's pretty rare. Um, there was a church that came out with a doctrinal change a couple of years ago in Madison, this was specifically attacking a doctrine that our church holds. And um, I wrote about a 15 page response to their like 30 page document that I did not publish in the end. I just was like, you know what? I, I, I just didn't sense, sense or believe that God wanted me to do that, to get into a public fight with them over this doctrine because it wasn't, um, it wasn't like the deity of Christ. It was, it was relative to gender roles and things like that. So, yeah, the one where I've struggled on recently is that modern theistic evolution is getting to the point where they reject a historical Adam 
So I, I wouldn't have said like 20 years ago when it didn't include that doctrine, I wouldn't have said that theistic evolution was necessarily the kind of doctrine I would be concerned about, like in terms of splitting fellowship with folks. Um, but the rejection of historical Adam is much closer to that for me, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so, so I'm, th- that concerns me as a area that's coming up right now. Um, yeah. 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 All right. Uh, next, it seems like the ways that we could each love the church and the people in it are innumerable. How do we know how much time to spend loving the church and how much time to spend loving people outside of the church? Seems like there's a lot of either or situations in these questions. Yeah, there's a lot of either or questions. <laughs> but, but like this one, this one I think is uh, a like an either or that I would partially accept because you are talking about distributing a limited resource. Right. Mm-hmm. So like either or between delight and correction, I think that is dictated by the situation you're in and you should be doing one or the other relative to the situation. This is, you have a certain amount of resources, you have time and you have to decide what you're doing. Right. So <clears throat> I think if you're always loving people either inside the church and outside the church, I don't think you're going to displease the Lord. Right. Especially if you're loving people outside the church in the name of Jesus and the way Jesus would love them and being prepared to, um, give an answer as to the hope within you, like it says in first Peter three 15. Right. Um, I think that is being part of the church. I think, go, I think going out and being a Christian in the world with a proper backward relationship to the church that you are a part of it. And you don't, um, you know, it's kind of like when I went out into the world as a Gibson, as an adult, right. I was no longer literally in my household, but I was an ambassador for my household because I didn't repudiate my household household. And I was still a member of my family and cherished it. Right. When you go out to work or you, you, you are part of what is sometimes called the church dispersed rather than the church gathered. When you leave the sanctuary, you leave the gathering of Christians and you become part of the church dispersed. The question is, do you still think of yourself that way that you are part of the church dispersed and in your witness for Christ and your living and in your example and all that, do you live as a member of the church dispersed? And if you do, then I don't think it matters that much whether you're, whether you're volunteering inside the church or whether you're serving outside the church. Um, I do think there are things like, for example, in the book of Nehemiah, I'll preach on this in a couple of weeks, where the people say, we will not let the house of God fall into disrepair. Like there's a certain amount of effort that has to go on at the church where the the, pro, the ministries that the church should be doing and whatever building or whatever things the church has that should be maintained can be maintained for the purposes of worship and ministry. Beyond that, I, I think the church should be as outreaching as possible, you know? So... Uh, but ultimately what this comes back to is the question of stewardship. You are a steward of your own life and you have to make those decisions yourself. <laughs> God has given you, given you a certain amount of life and talent and all kinds of things. They're in your hands to invest for his purposes and his name. Now do what you will. And if you love hospitality in your home, then do a lot of that. And if you're good at leading people to Christ, like in the biking club, then do a lot of that. And if you're good with kids inside the church, you know, I mean, so I, I just, Pursue God and do what you will, you know, as a yeah. steward. There's no way and, around that authority. Yeah. And from your sermon, I think do it devotionally and right. make sure that you're not just there for the, to check, check off the box. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. In both places, both in and outside the church. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
How would you coach someone who is reserved in bearing someone else's burdens because they are worried they will become a crutch for another person? How would that coaching change if they were worried serving others will exhaust them or that they need to have enough me time? So I think it's Mm -hmm. both sides of the same situation of coaching someone who's reserved in someone else's burdens. Yeah. So my understanding the first part of that question is you're, you're actually afraid to be an enabler that your service of them will hurt them. Yes. And then the second one is you're concerned about being depleted yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, let's go back to the definition of love. Love is, is doing what is the true good of another person, right? It's to act in the true good of another person. Mm -hmm. Um, Enabling another person. If you are truly enabling them, right. Is not, um, acting in their true good, right? Yeah. Um, you're alleviating their pain by harming them further, and when you're doing that, you're not doing what's in their for their good, and so it's not loving. And you shouldn't do things that aren't loving. So now I I say truly enabling because my concern is is that the minute you say that, it's kind of like giving people the right to have me time. Everything's a good excuse to be mean time. So people like that go out into the world, and anytime somebody needs help, they're like, "Well, I'm not enabling that person," or you know, anytime somebody is difficult, they're like, well, this is a toxic relationship and I'm no longer obligated to be part of it. You know, mm-hmm. um, words like toxicity, um, even the word abuse, right? As sacred a concept is as abuse. Like if you're abused, you should be freed from that abuse. It's that any, any word that that's, that's that powerful naturally gets abused, right? So the minute you give ab- the word abuse that much power, people misuse it, right? Because they want the power. And so um, they'll say this is abuse and that's abuse. Things that are just part of life. Of course, we abuse each other. Sin, all sin is abuse. And we're all constantly abusing each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like Twitter is basically this big abuse (laughs) field, right? Yeah. And yet people also think that the exchange in it might be worthwhile, right? And like, so I think that with abuse, toxicity, enabling, you just have to be super careful with those concepts. And Christians are meant to be long suffering. So um, if you, but and, and that can lead some Christians to stay in relationships of abuse. That's true. But that's why you need the out. Sometimes you need an outside perspective from people and be like, you know, this is what's happening. What do you think I should do? Um, and that gets into the larger question of being strong enough to face conflict. Because one of the reasons people either bow out of things before they should or stay in things longer than they should is because they actually don't know how to handle conflict. They don't know how to stand up to somebody that they stay in a relationship with and say, you're not going to treat me like this. And because they can't do that, they either get abused because they don't really know how to stand up for themselves or they just exit because they don't know how to stand up for themselves. And so they, they, they often engage in dereliction of duty. And, and remember, I, I say this with a broad definition of abuse. Like if you're being abused, like in a way that really merits the definition, um, I, don't, I don't see um, biblical commands for you to stay abused. I don't, I don't agree with that. So please don't, please don't understand me saying that. And I think sometimes counsel will help you know that you are being abused, that you in a relationship that truly is toxic, that you really should get out of. Yeah, somebody who came on staff with us, I was meeting with them in Chicago and we were talking over the church situation that they were in and the person was explaining it to me and they're like, yeah, it's been really hard. And I was like, listen, this doesn't sound really hard. This sounds like abuse. Like, it sounds like you're being manipulated constantly and being railroaded and threatened. And like, I would work for this guy. This guy's pastor doesn't even sound like a Christian. Right. And the guy, and, and this, this guy I was talking to was like, really? I was like, yeah. He's like, cause you know, I've been so close to this for so long that I don't even really know anymore. I was like, no dude, listen, either you're lying to me. 
your perceptions are totally wrong or this is abuse right and the person went back in the situation and like it became very evident to him in like a day they're like oh no this mm-hmm. is abuse no this is definitely and the person left eventually came on our staff and eventually went on another church's staff and is in a much better place now so sometimes by going through the process of like trying to sort out what's going on with these concepts it's actually very freeing and people who actually are stuck in abuse will get out of it um but again just be really careful with words like toxicity abuse enabling and so on because i think we can use those words to neglect the poor we'll be like oh we don't want to enable them and then it's like there was a book recently that came out not too not too long ago called toxic charity which basically said most of the charity we do hurts the poor right and the person who wrote it richard lupton i think is absolutely right most of what we do to help the poor actually harms them but it's really easy to read that book and be like throw up be like this is great i never have to give away a dime the rest of my life you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) like we're done and that's not what lupton believed i mean he had been in charity work for 40 years right? And it's certainly not what he wanted to communicate. And it's certainly not what we're supposed to take from it. But that's the problem with the flesh. The flesh is looking for a reason to make things easier and more selfish for ourselves. Yeah. So I think that's important. On the other flip side of that, the issue of like having enough me time, um, it's important that you distinguish between rest and diversion. Mm -hmm. You have no inherent right to diversion. There's a, there's a certain amount of enjoyment that God allows us some time to divert ourselves. I'm not saying like watching TV is always bad or anything like that, but it needs to be kept in a certain kind of proportion, right? I just call it amusement. Like there's a, like God doesn't work you to death. Like there's at some point where he just says, go about and do as you please. And we can, it's fine to amuse yourself in a way that doesn't really harm you. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's different than rest. Those are two different things. Certain kinds of amusement can also be restful. Certain kinds aren't restful. Right. So rest is something you're entitled to literally cosmically entitled to says the sabbath command amusement you're not entitled to at all and so um i would say as you work through exhaustion um you need to keep that in mind if rest if you're resting and you're still exhausted the problem is probably not your schedule the problem is probably your attitude and your character if you believe you should always be allowed to be at leisure and you have all these responsibilities you don't really want to do being forced to do them by morality is exhausting to you emotionally. And so you'll be constantly exhausted, right? And so that that happens a lot. And then, of course, another thing that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks is if you have a certain kind of emotional wound and loving people keeps aggravating that wound, it will emotionally exhaust you, even though you're not actually doing that much. So sometimes if we find ourselves exhausted, the answer isn't just more amusement or more, even more rest but it's actually a different kind of healing or a different kind of reordering of your passions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. How does the concept of a local church apply to someone living in a place where there are hardly any Christians? Yeah. I, I've really tried to keep this in mind as I've talked about some of the stuff. Like what if you live in like rural North Korea and you're a believer or certain places in Iran. And if you go to church and you get caught, it's like at least 10 years in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, my answer is as much as possible. As much as, much as possible. Um, I, one of the things I've noticed, though, too, Ashlyn, is when I talk to missionaries and people who work in these sorts of situations, though these are not the people. The people in these places are the people most likely to take make sacrifices to be connected to other Christians, rather than the least. Yeah. North, there's, I mean, there are North Koreans that have that wait at, like a year to be able to to like sneak to a place where there's other believers to spend some sweet fellowship with other people who belong to the body of Christ. It's actually in America where there are churches like every square mile where people just go, eh, I'm not going to go. 
I don't need, I don't need to be in a building to worship God. I could worship God on, you know, in St. Mattress without even getting out of bed, you know, like, and that's just tomfoolery. That's, that's just, that's just interested thinking is what that is. I mean, people just believing what they want to believe and they use a cliche that sounds to them like some kind of truthful aphorism. And I think Christians should call that out for what it is. So in cases where like, 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 for example, if you get thrown in prison in Iran and you're like by yourself, are you sinning because you're not going to church? Of course not. Right. And can God give you the grace without the fellowship of the shelter of the church to persevere? The answer is, of course he can, right? Spiritual gifts are directly infused graces, right? Um, Speaking in tongues is a good example of that. I mean, when the apostle Paul talks about speaking in tongues, he's often in prison, right? I think one of the reasons why he exhibited that gift more than almost everybody else he argues in 1 Corinthians 14 is I think he was alone a lot and had to encourage himself <laughs> and God yeah. infused direct the direct grace of that gift to him to encourage himself so he wouldn't lose heart. So I think God has his ways by his spirit mm-hmm. to sustain us. But that doesn't mean that you neglect somebody's appointed means because there are other special means that he uses in, exep- in exceptional situations. We are required to fulfill God's revealed will. If you lose your faith when there is a church available to you, and you will not utilize or live under its sheltering protection. You're never going to be able to say to God, well, you didn't provide for me what I needed to keep up my spiritual fervor serving you. He'll be like, I gave you with a church, right? But if you were in North Korea, he, I, he, I think he's going to judge you differently. And I think he's also going to provide for you differently. <laughs> and the Bible is full of God giving specific, broad commands to all of humanity. And then in special circumstances, making proper allowances according to his own judgment. Where humans get in trouble is we start deciding for God what his exceptional judgment should be. And we're Mm. usually wrong because the flesh always creeps into that judgment. That's why we have to be focused on doing what God says. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. So, can I I want to say, let me say one more really quick thing about the me time thing. One of the biggest things related to that is worry. It's just Mm. worry. Like people get exhausted by being worried about things. And then also similar, very similar to worry is anxiety based on like perseveration, like a thought that you go over and over and over and over again. And one of the big ones for that is how people have wronged you, which is why Jesus demands forgiveness. Yes. So there's some key areas where like, if you'll obey the Lord Jesus, that is, don't think about the future any more than to do your duty because each day has enough trouble of its own, right? That's Matthew six, seek first God's kingdom and love God more than man and have only one master and seek God's kingdom and everything will be added to you as well. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Focus on today, right? Ask God for your daily bread and your momentary pittance of grace and he will give it to you. Try to plan the future and everything and what you'll see is everything that could go wrong that will harass you and everything that could go right that you hope for that will disappoint you, right? And it will ultimately destroy you. Just don't do that. Live in the present in that sense. And then in terms of like the wrongs that spin around in your mind, forgive as Christ forgave you. Remember, Christ forgave you before you asked for it. Just forgive and let it go. And if you do those things, there's the exhaustion that those things create is greatly alleviated. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we're exhausted because we just simply won't obey Jesus and things have have nothing to do with our time or acquisition of energy. They have to do with our hearts. And because our hearts are the seat of emotion, because emotion is directly connected to our bodies and our minds. Remember, your brain is 4% of your body mass uses 20% of your energy. If you're going crazy in your mind, your brain is working like crazy and sucking up your energy and destroying your emotional capacity. That's why 
obeying Jesus tends to lead to mental health and emotional energeticness, which gives you the ability to love, right? And can put you in good temper and a good disposition. And then people want to do things for you. And then life isn't so hard. And then you can cooperate with folks and get so much more done and just obey the Lord more deeply and from the heart. And he tends to work out things on levels that you haven't yet imagined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's it for today. Thank, thanks for hosting, Ashlyn. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. It's been a while. Jill's on vacation. So yes, it has been a while, but yeah. All right. Well, thanks everybody. And we will see you next week. Yep. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.